Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported community project. It's made possible by supporting teammates like Heather Forrester, Chelsea Margaret Jacobs, M, David G. Wilson, and Andrew Tannenbaum. You can join them by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll gain access to our Team Human bonus feed, the Discord channel, our Team Human audio salons, as well as free admission to our Team Human live events. You'll also gain immediate access to the Team Human telepathic channel, the safest way to do interdimensional travel. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. A break from the noise so we can tune in on the signal, the weird in-between liminal off-pitch interzone between real people. You are not a number, you are a human being, and one of many in the same warm, delicious soup. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today publisher of Amok Books and director-producer of the new documentary Desolation Center, Stuart Sweezy. We can't completely overlook that sense of being alive also has an element of just unpredictability. Stuart is going to help us remember what it's like to do something for its own sake and then to stop before it becomes about something else. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Hey, I hope you're all doing well. I've been venturing out in the world lately. I was at a uh, convenience store the other night, and uh, it was pretty late, and I watched these kids come in who had just escaped from a party that they clearly didn't really like. And as soon as they were inside, they started uh, pulling out their phones and watching social media reports from the kids who had stayed at the party. And 
at first I thought it was like FOMO, right? But it, it wasn't fear of missing out at all. It, was, it wasn't that they wanted to be back at the party. If anything, they were looking at the photos to remind themselves that they weren't actually missing anything at all. The kids at the party were in the pictures and they were all, you know, really dutifully posing with whatever they were drinking, whoever they were flirting with. They were finding the best angles to photograph the kid who was throwing up in the trash can and putting the best headlines on the image. And someone was chronicling everything on WhatsApp. And someone was apparently live streaming confessional interviews with kids who were too stoned to realize what they were sharing. And what struck me the most about all this media coming from this failed party was how much work everyone was doing. I mean, that is likely a good part of the reason why the party was so bad. Nobody was actually there in the room, at least not from what I could tell looking at these kids' social media feeds. What they were doing only really mattered insofar as they could capture it. It was like a wedding where Everyone's a wedding photographer, but no one's an actual guest. No one knew how to party for its own sake. And it reminded me, when I was a kid, some neighbors of ours, uh, who call them the Gersh family, and they would take all these big trips to Europe. But when they got back, they'd make all the neighbors come and watch this Kodak carousel slideshow of all the photos they took of themselves at the Eiffel Tower or Machu Picchu. And they would narrate over the sound of the projector fan as if their photos were really interesting to us. I mean, don't tell them. The onion dip was good. And Mrs. Gersh was very generous with the chips. And they even they helped in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. I mean, they were good community people. But all I could think of as I sat through the endless travelogue was how the Gershes never really took a vacation. They traveled as if they were working journalists, more intent on imagining how each photo they took might look on the projected screen at home, and then recalling what little they did experience on their trip through their photos rather than through some kind of sense memory. And amazingly, after that, you wouldn't think I would, but but amazingly, I ended up becoming a professional writer, journalist myself. And while I don't begrudge anyone who wants to spend their time blogging and tweeting their lives, I want to suggest to anyone who will listen that this is not an appropriate way of going through life. I became a writer in part as a way of remaining just a bit removed from whatever I was doing. I could go to a wild rave or a psychically challenging LSD party, always holding on to the idea that, well, I'm just a reporter. I could remain a kind of participant observer with one part of my awareness always in journalistic mode. My writing was like this tether to safety, but it was also an obstacle to true immersion. You know, living with that tether, that's work. It's a barrier to experience and intimacy and something I've learned to let go of when I want to truly engage with a friend, a family member, nature, or even my own mind. You know, there are real 
downsides to being on duty 24-7. In some ways, it suggests that full participation just isn't worth it if it's not recorded somewhere. But that's just not true. What you do, what we do matters. That's not a reason to broadcast it, but to live it. So go play on social media, take pictures, stream videos, tweet your clever ideas, and write blogs if it makes you happy throughout this holiday season. You know, do a Zoom with your faraway relatives, but please save some time for yourself and whoever you're actually with. You are not on the job. Take some time off and enjoy the party. So here's a truly special conversation with my new friend, Stuart Sweezy, who just made the Indie Desert Festival documentary, Desolation Center, about these wonderful events he did out in the desert in L.A. with groups like uh, Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets and our own Minutemen with Mike Watt. He's also the publisher of Amok Books, the artist filmmaker executive behind a whole lot of cool TV, including Battlestar Galactica. But the occasion of this conversation was the release of his movie about the original post-punk desert festivals, Desolation Center, a true milestone in the history of human-centered art, music, and community. Here's Stuart Sweezy. First, Stuart, thanks thanks so much for making Desolation Center, the movie. If nothing else, watching that right at this desk was a, a milestone event for me in my life. It was just, it was very important couple of hours. It, wow. What, what can I say? That's, that's fantastic. So thank you. Thank you for that. You've had, a, the, for, as far as I'm concerned, your reason for being alive has... <laughs> Accomplished. All right. <laughs> now I can um, relax. So, yeah. Uh, how did how did you? Um, I forgot how we know each other. How did you get that to me? You know, I, I'm familiar with your books, and I think you know probably I I don't know that we directly you know, but uh, I, I knew we that didn't you were like hang out at a boing boing party, or we you know, didn't right. meet through Mike Watt or something. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think you know. I remember you know Queen Moo and Mondo 2000 and and, and, uh-huh. and that era. Uh, I know that you did stuff with Genesis Peorage, who I've known right. who knew for many years as well. And um, so I just kind of thought, you know, I'd like to get Douglas to see this film. And it was more just about like the prepared mind and, and your, your mindset mm. more than that we'd actually hung out. But we could have been in the same place at the same time. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it must have happened. So I guess let's start at, at, at the beginning of this. So for our audience who don't know the, the, the history here. So in the early 80s, as... I was just graduating college and moved out to L.A. to go to CalArts, of all places, yeah. um, where Pee Wee Herman roamed the hallways in his roller skates. Um, there was a a terrific, I guess you could call it punk or medium post-punk 
music scene happening in Los Angeles. I would drive up and down Highland and see them on Highland Boulevard and go, oh my God, there's a scene. Because I knew the New York scene, the Dead Boys and Max's Kansas City oh, and that. Right. And I thought LA was going to have nothing. You know, maybe Flipper was somewhere or something. But there was this music scene, right? There was uh, uh, the Minuteman and the Meat Puppets and uh, wonderful things happening. And you were like involved and then got the idea to do some shows, some nice, easy shows in the desert. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I grew up here in LA. And um, so the the first kind of music events that I went to were like the Elks Lodge show where, you know, the Go-Go's played along with, you know, the Screamers or something like that. It was It was just very eclectic, but it seemed like the, the common thread was that everybody was trying to do something different. So I got used to the idea of like going to Chinatown and seeing the germs at a Chinese restaurant, you know, with Darby standing on the table or whatever, that that's how you saw music. And I, I, so I, I missed the phase of like going to the big stadium to see sticks or whatever, you know, that just was never my thing. Right. I just really... As time went on, uh, downtown L.A. became more like the place where I would go to see bands. Like, I don't know if you heard about, you know, the Atomic Cafe, which had this punk rock jukebox. Right. And then next door, there was the Brave Dog. And there was this amazing guy, Jack Marquette, who really deserves a lot of credit. But for people who don't remember, who, or who weren't around, downtown L.A., in the early 80s, it wasn't like going to downtown like New York, right? Downtown LA was like Winston Street and 6th Street. It was like homeless men, right? We're not allowed to use, that's a bad word. But it was homeless men, drunks, drug addicts, ex-cons, um, Vietnam vets. It was almost all male. And it was it was just scary place. There wasn't it wasn't like shiny office buildings. Right. Maybe there was like one Transamerica Tower was somewhere, but it was it was a bombed out, weird, scary, cultureless wasteland. And places like the Atomic Cafe were like like these these tiny tiny post apocalyptic oases. You know, in the middle, there was nothing around them. Do you know what I mean? It was like absolutely, uh, yeah. It, I, I mean, <laughs> wasteland is the term that that comes to mind. You know, but but part of it had to do with the crack situation, but also just no right. one cared. It, it it was like all the the sort of the people with the money and prestige and all that had moved on to other parts of town and this was left over right. but there's... they were like in studio city or century other, city there were other and, yeah yeah century city right there were these other places with big modern office buildings with wealthy people and porsches going yeah. and downtown just got like left behind it was more like like detroit or something yes yeah so so anyway so that for me as a teenager was like the happy hunting grounds where you could go see these Right. Incredible bands. And you, you know, pay $5 and it was all the beer you could drink included. And there would be, you know, Christian Death and Ron Athey, who's become an amazing mm -hmm. performance artist, would be, you know, being crucified and, you know, just crazy stuff. And I always felt like those settings uh, were more kind of appropriate for the kind of music that I was into, which wasn't just punk rock. Uh, but also, I think what now you kind of look back on is, and call post-punk, but it was either noisy, it might have been something like Nervous Gender that was very, like, synthesizer-based, but performance-based stuff. And so I started at first just trying to, you know, because it seemed like there was a, 
there was a lull, like putting on my own shows as Desolation Center, but just in that environment, in that urban wasteland. And even trying to do that, we had a lot of problems with the LAPD. So things were getting shut down. Uh-huh. Uh, but I was already doing shows with the Minutemen and, you know, some other other bands that were innovative, doing stuff that, you know, just didn't fit into the, you know, sort of the punk convention. So after being shut down multiple times, um, I ended up on a road trip with a friend of mine whose family lived in Mexico. And uh, so we spent a lot of time just driving through the Sonora Desert to get to, you know, his family's hometown and stuff like that. And it was then that I just realized, like, I'm listening to Savage Republic. I'm listening to Public Image Limited. This is really spacey. You know, it's not it's not conventional psychedelic music, but it's it's trippy. And it's also kind of has this yeah. uh, Ennio Morricone kind of like spaghetti Western vibe to it and other things uh-huh. going on. And I thought, wow, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a much better idea to see this kind of music performed in the desert than in your typical... And, and at that point, you know, it was getting really hard to do anything outside of the sort of rock and roll sunset strip nightclub thing. Right. And for people who don't know, it's also because, you know, the, the cops then, this was like, right, this is a decade before Rodney King, right? But they were already militarized in LA. It was awful. If you were black, you were just always, you were on your knees with your hands behind your back. That's just what they did to black people. If you were young or having fun or a woman, they would harass you. They would pull you over. They would, they would, break into clubs that were doing truly nothing wrong and were even legal and licensed and they would just make everyone go home for for nothing so it was so hostile in LA which i think was part of the drive you know on the one hand the beautiful psychedelic landscape that you saw and you're like whoa this music sounds really cool here and on the other we needed a safe haven to party completely yeah i mean i mean you can't exaggerate how violent the crackdowns were Right. You know, when I was interviewing people for the film, I'd be like, do you remember like cops like smashing, you know, young middle school age kids with, with like night six? You're like, oh, yeah. You know, it's just like, and then it would just exactly. go on from yes, there. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it happened a lot. I remember where they would come into a club and make us leave, right? So then we're all pushing to the doors and to the sidewalk outside, but then they've blocked you in with cop bodies so you can't escape either. And it's like, what do you want? Do you want us to leave? If you want us to leave, then get out of our way. So instead, they're just like corralling us yeah. or trying to create a situation where they get to hurt us. Right. And, and it would happen. I mean, you there know? would be out and out riots, and, yeah. but usually violence. it was a, you know, it really was a police riot. And so that, that put a damper on all kinds of, you know, nightlife yes. um, <laughs> that you might just want it. You know, there's still all the usual obstacles of finding a space and, and promoting it and all that. But then you had, you know, you had this like occupying army to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So these two things sort of came together in my mind uh, on this road trip that we could get away from all the oppression and and the bad vibes that kind of go with that, you know, by just taking people out to the desert. And also it would be an appropriate setting to see music that was more mind expanding and, you know, that kind of thing. So so that was the idea. Um, But then, you know, at that point in time, you know, I I don't want to say whether people have done shows in the desert in LA prior to that, in the LA area, obviously it was several hours outside of LA. But for me, it was a completely new idea. I didn't know anyone that had done it. And so I had to find people that go along with it, you know, and and help me figure out how to make it happen. Right. And the shows, the thing that was so beautiful about these shows is they were, I mean, we hear 
oh, you did shows in the desert and people think like Burning Man and 10,000 people gathered around a neon thing. This was like a couple of hundred, if that, like a hundred, well, how many people were at the first one that made it out there? Right. So the first one uh, was the Minutemen and Savage Republic and three school buses. So it was basically just a little over a hundred right. people. And the whole school bus thing it also served multiple purposes, just kind of like the way going out of the desert did. One part of it was it became like this journey where all these people were on it together. And uh-huh. we didn't tell them where they were going. So Bruce Leischer from Savage Public, he had been at UCLA and had Chris Burden, who's an early performance artist as a teacher. So I think he kind of liked the idea of like having the audience not necessarily know what they were in store for. And then mm-hmm. there was also a practical side of it is that we didn't know how to sell tickets to an empty dry lake bed. So we thought, well, if you give them right. the transportation <laughs> included, right. then there's a way to kind of actually pay for the whole gig. And just a sense of control. You know, yeah. it's like when you step on the bus, now you're in the show, you know, as opposed to some random gathering out in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and I think over yeah. that time of an hour and a half to two hours out going through, you know, the Inland Empire, out to the desert. And, uh, you know, people kind of bonded together and and became more of, of a community by the time they got there, which was also kind of memorable. And you basically just set up a couple of generators and some amps in front of a, like, a, almost like a, a, a little three-bus formation. Yeah. And it just did the shows. Right. I mean, I mean, the sound <laughs> guy, uh, Ed Serino, just, you know, uh, he he's actually a voice that you hear. I don't know if people know the film Decline of Western Civilization, but he did a lot of the punk shows. Mm. And uh, he's just like, sure, this sounds cool. I'll do it. We get there and it's really windy <laughs> on the dry lake bed. So, uh-huh. so then we're like, oh, people aren't going to be able to hear. You know, the musicians can't hear themselves playing. And so, so then we, at that kind of, Spur of the moment came up with this three bus formation so that there would be a windbreak, yeah. so that there would be sort of in terms of audio that it could actually work. Um, but it ends up to be a, like a really cool visual as well. Just these yeah. part of the surrealism. Now I look back on it is these yellow school buses with an empty dry lake bed and some amps and and you know small audience in front of them. It looks great. And the thing is, you know, between that show and and the next two, which got, you know, subsequently uh, bigger or trippier in some ways. I mean, Sonic Youth made it out to the second or the third show. And there was the, who are those guys? Uh, Mark, Mark Pauline and um, what are they called? SRL? Survival Uh, Research Laboratory. Survival Research Laboratory. They came and started blowing stuff up in the desert, tried to blow up a mountain and stuff. I mean, you got to see the movie. You'll see all these great stories. But the feeling that I got, and this is, I know, okay, boomer, nostalgia, (laughs) blah, blah, Gen X or whoever I am. But when I look at the pictures of the people I know, like Mike Watt and Perry Farrell, who I became friends with later through Timothy Leary and all, it's all of us were deeply normal people, if you know what I mean. We wore, I mean, a few, there were a few glam types around, but we wore very normal clothes. We just wore clothes, shirts and pants, maybe, you know, some Doc Martens. It was just like school children, like young college students and college dropouts. It was like in Slacker when you walk around Austin with Rick Linkletter and you see these are just regular people, sweet you know what I mean? There was something so human and normal. And yeah, we were listening to and making 
crazy music, like Genesis P. Orridge, strange industrial sounds in the desert and blowing up robots. But when you actually look in the faces and hearts of the people, there's such a, do you know what I mean? There was such a normalcy, such an appropriate scale to the humans. I completely agree. I mean, I you know, I, <laughs> I, I feel like I was one of those people, you know, just... For me, the fashion was never a big part of it. Right. There were so many other things going on. But I, I, no disrespect to the people that showed up with the Mohawks, and because now you know you need Beautiful. you need them. Yeah. To, you know the, the the juxtaposition of those people against the desert backdrop looks really good. But I don't think they yeah. were in the majority, <laughs> and I think a lot of it had to do with again the spirit of the time. Like it was more that you were into this weird approach to the whole music world and and also that led into other things like people publishing zines or putting on shows. But a lot of people just, you know, the last thing they're worried about was, you know, looking cool. And it was more about, you know, kind of being right. creative and doing, making your contribution. So for me, like being not a musician, I was really interested in this idea of questioning the assumptions about where bands should play or where mu music should happen. So that became kind mm -hmm. of my contribution to the scene. That's how I looked at it, you know. Well, no, this is more of the contribution than that is, you know, Perry Farrell was at these things and then thinks up to do Lollapalooza. Uh, the guys who started Burning Man were at these things and got the idea to start up Burning Man through that. You know, Mark Pauline's career and Survival Research Laboratories was forever changed by merging it with industrial music and seeing it as this kind of performance art phenomenon. You, you, what you say in the movie, which is so, uh, uh, I think is what was my initial aha moment. You said, you know, you you were thinking you wanted to make a concert that would like that had the spirit of a zine, you know. And I thought about, you know, my wife was a zinester. She did the zine called Plots. Okay. And once Plots got big, it was a zine about um, Jewish rock stars, and it, it was just a great zine, very small, but but had uh, to it, you know, umph to it. And then it's like Jewish pop stars and hip Judaism became kind of a bigger thing. Yeah. And there was this bigger magazine called Hebe Magazine that came along and funding and scale. And as soon as that happened, she was like, okay, I'm done. And so likewise, you came out of a zine aesthetic or a zine culture, which is we're all just doing for each other. It's a community that's making stuff. It's not about money. No one's going to profit. Everything's free. And it's all about enhancing the creative connections and, and, and experience of these people. But likewise, like a zine, when it, you had three of them and it was getting successful, so you knew, oh, it's time to stop. You know, that's yeah. so counterintuitive to today's, you know, mindset. Right. And and I think that, um, well, first of all, I don't want to say everything was free because I think it's important for people to realize that when someone's promoting yeah. something or creating something, you know, they might need funding, but it, it's more how, where it but comes from. But it's not from. the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's two two dollars for a zine exactly. that's distributed right. at Tower Records or a muck is very different than oh we're going to get Pepsi ads and try to get rich and get investors and do a VC right. and then get a TV no, show. No, I don't. And yeah. I think you you know definitely I can sense in in your writings and, and conversation that you know we just didn't look at these creative things as career moves. It just was it was uncool to approach <laughs> it that way, but it was also. It, highly impractical and improbable. Yeah. It's like a career move. None of this was the eighties. We were in the worst recession. We all either went to or got out of college in a time when we had zero expectation of getting a job. Right. Pretty much 
ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and a lot of people did have, you know, day jobs or they were, you know, yeah. day painting jobs. houses. We were temping at lost. Right. I yeah, mean, we I remember, typing. you know, we were, yeah. Kim and Thurston from Sonic Youth for years were, were you know, were, were house painters while they were doing Sonic Youth because that's yeah. kind of how you paid the bills. Having that perspective, it does, it also gives you freedom to do whatever the hell you want because no, you know, right. the, it's, it's not necessarily going anywhere except for the, for, for that moment. And there's one thing that Mike Watts says, and I don't know if it ended up in the film, but he, he, ta- he, he goes like, it was all about the moment, the moment, the moment. And, you know, that's kind of, yeah, in a way, something that I think is, is part of just being young, but also, um, in that particular time, I think it was just acceptable to have spontaneity and not worry about some some career path out of what you were doing. And some some people ended up doing it for the rest of their lives, you know, in a great way, like Michael Girard with Swans. I mean, incredible what he's mm. doing now, you know. Having that space to kind of just try things out and, and, and not really be answerable to anyone but yourself or the small group of people made things a lot more creative. And then I guess that gets to the question of uh, how do we, do we, or is it appropriate to try to retrieve that sense of, of scale? And when I say scale, I mean the opposite of what you know Silicon Valley means by scale. This appropriate human-sized community of scale. The, the Desolation Center was, was a demonstration of anarcho-syndicalism. You know, it was a, a tribal, like a tribal cooperative, like, you know, formulation, you know, and even, even when you got, uh, when the government came, came after you for, um, you know, for using the site and they wanted what, $400 yeah. or something that seemed like 50,000, <laughs> right. you know, they did the Minutemen do a benefit concert for you to, you know, the, <laughs> the people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of how, because we're all part of the same thing. Right. That's kind of how we rolled. And, and, you know, the great thing about benefit was it was, it was another really cool Minutemen show and, you know, Hope Sandoval, actually that was her first mm-hmm. gig was with, pre-Mazzy star. So, you know, thank you for calling it anarcho-syndicalist. I, I mean, I, I love that interpretation of what we were doing, but it's true. I mean, a lot of people just showed up because we needed them to do, you know, this or that, make the flyers, you know, be the bus monitor. Like per- Perry was one of the bus monitors. You know, my good friend Mariska was another bus monitor on the first one. And, you know, people weren't getting mm-hmm. paid for that. It was just step up, do what you need to do, because this is going to be cool. You right. know? Exactly. And and they look back on that. It's like when Perry Farrell talks about Desolation Center, it's kind of the way – I mean, because he rose to the to in some ways to the top of the music scene. As far as I'm concerned, he was it. Yeah. You know, you know, with Jane's Addiction, Porno for Pyros. I mean, these are major bands. He did Lollapalooza. He was a rock star, and he credits Desolation Center the way, like when you hear like the head of FedEx saying, "And I started in the mailroom with a push broom." You mean he did? He started as a bus <laughs> monitor at Desolation yeah. Center, yeah. He's sitting there, and you see the pictures of him at Desolation Center watching um, Sonic Youth playing i think with a little pad and i wonder what is he writing there it's like the ideas that are coming to him as he's watching that for the rest of his career you know and he finally got to play at the last one i know (laughs) it's like you know it's like one of his first real concerts he plays his you know and then launches his career but you know that 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 sense of of origin for so many people is so great and it only really happens in these in these kind of uh, community family business like community uh tribal 
endeavors. And I guess what I'm wondering is, do you see evidence of that today or a way of retrieving some of that? Like, like the thing that's tempting to do, and it's the wrong way to, about it, is to retrieve the aesthetic, you know, and like, um, um, and, and bless his heart, like Jay Babcock, a, a great guy, started Arthur Magazine, and he's living out in the desert, and it had that desert feel mm-hmm. to it, and he got me and Dan Pinchback and Thurston to be writing for it, and got music, but it's it 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 worked on on so many levels, but on on the other hand, I'm wondering, it's not the aesthetic, it's not that our music matters, it's not that everyone has to have listened to Throbbing Gristle and Minutemen, but there was a, a a sensibility that I'm trying so desperately with Team Human and all my work to try to retrieve so people can operate again at scale and with love and without you know without the goal of of getting rich or scaling up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, and and I think however you're able to get that message out to people, I really in making the film, I, I kind of I wanted to tell my story and our story of all the people, but I also wanted to be a catalyst for people that are you know in their early twenties to say, hey, these guys did this the same way like the Merry Pranksters, you know, acid test things. When I read about that in Tom Wolfe's book, uh, that you know. It sort of struck mm. a chord, like, hey, those guys are doing that. That was really cool. I was never a deadhead, but I love the idea of these sort of, you know, multimedia trippy events. And and I think that's, to me, always going to be just something that is important. And it doesn't really matter what the sonic environment of it is or what the visuals are. I mean, it's more the idea of people creating their own events and not waiting for the corporate world to sell them a you know expensive ticket with a with an all access pass and whatever you know and and so i'm hoping that th- when people see the film wh- you know whatever age they are whatever music they're into that they will be inspired and i and obviously coming out of the pandemic when all live music was locked down for so long you know it's a, it's kind of an interesting blank slate where we can reinvent how music is presented. I'm not sure if it'll happen. And to come to your point uh, about the scale, it's like, to me, that, that was always like, it, it, if it gets too big, it's not going to be fun anymore. And I just, I mean, I see it every Man. time, you know, and it, it suddenly becomes... Every time. It happened again with raves. Yeah. I remember those first few raves that I went to, there was like three, 400 kids at like Half Moon Bay in Santa Cruz, you know, co-opting or, or a public space, taking back, you know, a public space and putting big speakers and, and doing this thing. And then, you know, but by the time it gets to, you know, Calvin Harris getting $500 million to plug in a USB stick at the <laughs> Borgata or whatever in Las Vegas, it's like, that's not rave. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. something else. I, you know, I, I produced a, a documentary called Better Living Through Circuitry that a friend of mine, John Reese, right. um, was the director of. And and it was partly I got involved in it, partly to learn about making a documentary and partly because I just loved the vibe of that scene, even though I wasn't in the early days of it. But even in the late 90s, there was still a, mm. a lot of idealism. A lot of ex-industrial, ex-punk rock people were involved. Um, right. And things going on out in the desert. You know, we we filmed Electric Sky Church out in the in the desert. I think that the irony of finishing the film was everybody was like, oh, rave's over. But it's like, no, they just figured out how to market EDM. Right. And then you have Electric Daisy Carnival, which God knows how many hundred thousand people 
now go to that. But that was just a, a, a local rave promoter doing warehouse shows, you know, in LA. So I, I don't, I think the message is for me anyway, that's always going to happen. You can't control that aspect of, of our culture, but you can create your own stuff with your own friends or your, the people that share your sensibility and do it for its own sake because it will make your life better, you know, even in ways you don't necessarily right. anticipate. And I guess then there's a certain discipline about knowing when to stop, yeah. you know, and it's not to be, ex- <laughs> you know, it's not to be exclusive or exclusionary, but it's like, no, no, the thing can't grow. It could spawn. I mean, in other words, I would have rather seen a hundred other outdoor, deserty, whatever concerts done around the country. Let the Alabama scene do theirs and the Minnesota right. scene do theirs rather than try to... But, you know, that's capitalism. You you scale. Well, I think there's both. I mean, I, there, there were desert shows after the three that Desolation yeah. Center organized. And I, I know that, you know, people have done other events in the middle of a cornfield in Kansas or whatever, you know, appropriate uh-huh. to their environment. And so I, I just think not all of it gets publicized. I mean, to be honest... Thank a lot God. of people never heard yeah. of Desolation Center either. You know, I, I kind of right. slowly, and this is because of YouTube and things like that, realized that these shows had taken on a certain legendary status. People were watching Sonic Youth at Gila Monster Jamboree on YouTube and going like, wow, how, how come I never knew about this? And so that was part of my motivation to make the film was to pull it all together and really tell the story. But it's still it's still an obscure little blip in the overall, you know, but I I don't want to take away from whatever somebody else might have done somewhere else appropriate to, you know, Detroit or wherever. Yeah. I guess, you know, there's this desire to know, you know, and that's why I go to anarcho-syndicalism, right? The syndicate, you know, that, that it's somehow reassuring to know, oh, we're doing our three shows here, but we're part of a network of people and, oh, look, they're doing another show over there and they're doing something over there. So you still feel like something... That it's really happening, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. That do you know what I mean? That there's a, a Absolutely. Well, I think that was the same, you know, when when we used to read like Flipside magazine, you know, which was a punk rock right. zine, and there'd be like the scene report, you know, it'd be this little thing somebody had typed up on a typewriter <laughs> and then like shot down, you know, you could barely read it. But it would be like what's going on in Nashville or wherever. And I think that that was that was that feeling of like, oh, it's not right. just here it's not just in our little suburb or whatever it's it's nationwide it's worldwide and um you know and and also for me like going to berlin at that age you know was was a big deal like i was like wow you know it's similar but it's different you know and seeing einstein's and neubaut and just kind of uh blew my mind at, at that particular moment because they were doing something that was industrial or that was you know, in the punk spirit, but they weren't even using conventional instruments. You know, they were using power tools and stuff like that and banging on metal. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that uh, that exchange, that back and forth, w- even though it, w- it was different, it was more analog then, I do think that that was really important, you know, people communicating from different places. And- right. And there was, you know, and, and you could ping across with the cassettes and with the music itself. So you yeah. like you hear oh, look at this weird shit coming out of Detroit, you know? And it's like Kraftwerk goes, oh, 
<laughs> we could do something with that, you know, and it, it, it pings yeah. back and forth. And then the Japanese kids go, oh, actually, that sounds like a video game. You know, what if we play <laughs> with it this way? You know, and, and it's a conversation that starts moving. You know, and that's why it was nice, even though they weren't local, it was great to bring out Thurston and, and, and Sonic Youth to bring them out because they were, what, Boston-based, I guess. No, New York. I mean, the thing— New York? It, it, it sounds like I brought Sonic Youth out, but the, the, the truth of the matter is Kim— Gordon grew up in L.A., and her family, her mom and dad, were here. And, and, and so they were visiting her, you know, Kim and Thurston were visiting her parents. And so uh-huh. I, that's why I was able to meet them in the first place. <laughs> and then, I, right. you know, Isn't we it, showed exactly. the film. For people to understand, that's how touring worked back then. It's like, yeah. oh, someone's visiting their mom. Oh, while you're here, <laughs> will you play for us? <laughs> right. Uh, and so, okay. so that's why the show was... <laughs> The show was January 5th because, you know, they were out for Christmas. And, you know, so then they only had to bring, you know, Bob Burt and Lee Ronaldo. And it it also was like, for them really, you know, by that time they knew about the two desert shows that we'd done. And and it was like, yeah, this would be also conceptually a really cool place to play our first West Coast show because they'd already put out Death Valley 69, which was about Charles Manson and the desert and all that Mm. stuff. You know, that's another thing just to... To hold on to that for a second, I I also felt Desolation Center concerts, for me, were also a way of taking back the desert from the Manson vibe. You know, it's really since, you know, as part of psychedelic culture, Manson was always used as the example, there, that's where it goes, you know? <laughs> you know, that's sort of what Manson brought down Leary. Manson brought down the 60s in, in some ways. And yeah. it always seemed like, well, out in the desert is where that bad shit happens. And Desolation Center kind of reclaimed the desert for... The fun, the weird. I mean, I know there's also just all sorts of indigenous uh, uh, appropriation and all that kind of stuff that, that you know associated with America taking over the desert. But right. I mean, and to the extent that this was respectful of it, in terms of the 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 psychedelic kids going back to the desert to reclaim it for the forces of good, you know, I felt like it it was a banishing ritual in a certain level. I think that's really cool, and I had I honestly, you know, never really thought of it in that light. But for me. There was a generally, I think, coming up as as a punk rocker in L.A., there was all this legacy of what the hippies did this and, you know, the Laurel Canyon people did that. And and it's like, so (laughs) I, you know, we all grew up under the shadow of Woodstock and like, wow, but it'll never be that. So my whole approach was what can we do? You know what I mean? Like we're not, you know, at CBGB's, we're not in London, but we have the desert, you know, and and so let's go out there and do something really cool there because that's that's our kind of environment you know even though obviously we were living in the city and not out in the desert but you're right there was an aspect of nobody goes out there it's just a bunch of you know whatever desert rat you know prospect yeah. crackhead whatever type you know um and, and and that's always part of it too there is a kind of a menace to it but there's also like a, a lot of beauty and i think people over the years have come to appreciate, you know, Joshua trees become kind of a, you know, suburb of Silver Lake in a certain way, you know. Well, in that like sense, people do yeah, it. but there's the but there's the weird out there. It's like Desert Oracle and all the UFO cults and Art yeah. Bell and a trailer right. broadcasting his show. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely uh, it, it's definitely an otherworldly place, you know, as an basically urban person when you get out there, I think it's very liberating. You, you, it just sort of resets all your, your mental ideas about what things should be, your sense of scale and all that. 
Yeah. And you get that in the, in the movie too. You know, when, when the kids are coming off the bus toward the camera and you can see they're just like, <gasps> it's like, you know, what, what the mall designers call Gruen, Gruen transfer. When, it, when you walk into a shopping mall, the scale of the mall puts you in a, in a weird state yeah. so that you go buy stuff. It, it like, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of kills your defenses. But the desert, you know, when they're like in that, in that moment of pre awe of like, oh, this is different. Oh, <laughs> my body, there's a different somatic, visual, and spiritual sensibility here. And you just see everyone come out. They're like, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> now I understand why Stuart made me spend two hours on a right. bus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something happened. Yeah. Now, what about, I mean, I don't know. What did you do for bathrooms there? Did you bring out Portisani things? We did. No. Um, I, you for did. some reason, they, they don't. They didn't end up in any of the photos that, that I know. I, I, I've got. But I, I remember. I remember renting, you know, porta potties, having them dropped off on the dry lake bed, and then that was like the sound guy was one of the first people to, to go out there to, to set up. And and I remember saying, well, when you get there, you'll see the porta potties, and you know, don't set up too close to them. But but yeah. so we did we did provide that. But I mean, in general, we didn't have a lot of facilities, and, and um, I think we just didn't have a lot of extra water, or you know, I, I remember having. Like at least one keg of beer out there that was just you know f- for whoever wanted it. But yeah, it was uh, you know it was pretty rough and ready. And um, but the idea was that it, it wasn't a big camping trip. You know, we took people right. out, and then when the show was over, they all got back on the bus and went back home. In you know, in, in most cases, I mean, some people stayed around with pickup trucks or whatever to put the gear away, or you know, right? They didn't have to survive out there, right? Right. But we also kind of expected people to bring their own, you know, picnic, you know, bat things or whatever. And, right. and, you know, kind of just be responsible for themselves and their friends. And I guess what what I'm wondering, you know, for, for me, the the encouragement I got from this is to stay, to, to be truly okay staying local and staying known by my friends, contributing to my own community, not worrying about social media hits and fame level and all that, you know, seeing how fake and unfulfilling that stuff is compared to the real life thing. And, you know, because I'm sort of in the process, I think, of some kind of a big career ending dropout mic drop something, you know, write some kind of a manifesto of, look, just 99% of us should get off the fucking internet altogether, read the newspaper every couple of nights if you need to know what's going on, and just roll up your sleeves, help your neighbors, and we're going to solve all the world's problems that way. You know, if if 1% of us have our eye on the global situation, the other 99% can really just take care of everybody else. You know, yeah. it, it, would, it would be fine. And this this movie was like, so I had that thought like last week and then or the week before and then i put on this movie and the movie sort of is the religion of that it's like saying yes not only does this fun this is your roots this is where you came from this is when you were the happiest this is this is your 20s this is what what that was and of course it's accessible of course it's possible because it's not what I used to think of it, oh, this utopian dream that everyone has in their 20s of living in the ultimate commune and all that. And it's like, you don't have to do it that specifically. You don't have to do it that intentionally. You can just be in your town. You know, the infrastructure, yeah. local infrastructure exists. You could just do it. And I guess what I'm wondering is, as as 
you know, you look back on this and, you know, obviously your work now is about preserving some of these sensibilities for future generations in these movies. I mean, where where do you see your your signs of hope? You know, what what encourages you about, you know, humanity moving forward? I think one thing that maybe I would address about what you said is it's not necessarily, I mean, I think the things that those events were is about a sense of um, ecstatic experience and transcendence mm. that doesn't, it's not like you're, it's not like we're 24 seven, like love and life, you know what I mean? But it, but it was like more focusing right. on creating these moments and that all that work that led up to it. Sometimes people got the benefit of maybe somebody else's hard work and just showed up and had an ecstatic experience. That's okay. But then maybe they would be doing something else at another time that I would just participate yeah. in. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's something I think that's, important is it's not just how we organize society, but it's, it's you know, I, I know this word can be overused, but it's ritual and things like that, that maybe we're, we're building up to yeah. those things. But as far as what gives me hope, I mean, I even have to say, like, in terms of my screenings, you know, there's people that do really interesting work in your area, New York, rooftop films. I mean, they, they put on an outdoor desolation center screening lee ronaldo uh played his music it was in the greenwood cemetery which i'd never been uh -huh. to but it's out in brooklyn and um the overall thing it was like a really great way to show the film in a different environment and have this music that kind of became almost like um you know he was calling up the spirits in, in this cemetery and so it's that site-specific kind of thing can really work and that that Ecstatic experience, part of it, you know, it's interesting how I, I kind of left that out, and that's sort of the center of it. It's kind of like talking about, I always talk about Judaism when I talk about, I talk about Torah, but I never talk about the people davening and getting into those altered states as if that's, oh, well, that's, you know, the Grateful Dead part of it. But in some ways, the essential part of it, that these people, I mean, if you were going to talk to Genesis about what's happening in the desert, he would say people are moving their bodies in response to noise, you know, that there's... I was just speaking with someone who's studying uh, uh, psychology now and, and trauma, and she was saying how animals respond to trauma by having these weird little like shake and gyrations of their body. They kind of shake it off in a way, and that human beings we don't do we don't shake it off anymore. We don't uh, uh, we don't you know and these these group ecstatic. Dan and people were dancing in the desert to that music. You know, you didn't have to. It wasn't yeah. like disco where you got to dance, but some did. They were in ecstatic trance ritual together, healing from trauma, and you know, what I mean, experiencing a a, a group, a, yeah. a group ecstatic phenomenon. You know that that c can't be denied. It wasn't just some intellectual sit around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of you know other things that are out there in the culture. I mean, I guess I just, you know, I, I, on, on the human level, like I, when I was able to do screenings and film festival screenings and, you know, someone would come up to me in their early twenties and say like, wow, I'm really glad I came to this. I want to do something like this. You know what I mean? To me, that mm. that's fantastic. You know, yeah. it's interesting to me. I mean, you know, I, I look at all the, all the technology aspect of things that, you know, you think so deeply about and ultimately, they are just tools, you know? I mean, we had Xerox machines uh, that you could use at, at, you know, at your job or whatever after hours and make your zine or whatever. But yeah. we could make flyers and hand them out at record stores. But, I mean, records were technology as well. So I feel like there's so much potential. And I do think that, you know, it's all the quantifying that I think is, 
is is really a problem. You know, it's like where everybody can see how successful they are in terms of likes or views or all that stuff. And I I think that you know getting away from that and more having this qualitative experience of using all this technology is probably something that will happen. You know, I mean, I think that people are going to be a little bit jaded about judging yourself on, on, on those kind of metrics. So I, I guess, you know, I, I do think there are people doing interesting music. There's people, you know, putting on site-specific shows. You know, I, I know here in L.A. that, you know, I've sort of tapped into a, a community of people because they've seen the film and gotten in touch and things like that. And, you know, a lot of times you might just have to do a little bit more work to find those things that are going on. Right. Or in some ways, less work, you know. You know, just close the computer, go outside, walk right. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some- <laughs> right, for sure. <laughs> I mean, which is hard right now. I mean, right now it's a really tricky period because of all the, the COVID and the isolation. But it's like finally at the end of it, I feel like the last couple of months, I finally realized, oh, wait a minute. Rather than trying so hard to do what I can't really do online, what if I use this period to read the books I always wanted to read, to find stuff? You know what I mean? To 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 look for, you know, to look for the the deep experience, to look for what I'm missing, and you know, the, this film among that. I mean, part of it also, yeah, I do think that that was, at least for me, how I spent a lot of time in that era was, you know, reading something like a Dostoevsky book. I mean, that didn't seem like a big deal to me back then because you it seemed like you had all this time, even though I feel like we were doing more interesting, fun things <laughs> at the same time. But I do think there's a lot of fragmentation of you know, like you're constantly checking your phones and, and stuff like that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that what you're suggesting makes a lot of sense, you know, and it's, it's, it's finding that balance because you do need to communicate with people and get the word out or create whatever new things are going to happen. But I think events themselves, you know, are important and, you know, uh, yeah. what, whatever brings people together to, to do something interesting. And, you know, I mean, there was an element of, of danger, you know, in these Desolation Center shows too, you know, with explosions and, you know, metal flying over people's heads and, you know, the bus breaking down. And, and I, I do think that, you know, yeah, we, we can't completely overlook that sense of being alive also has an element of this unpredictability. And, that's important as well. I mean, I'm really happy that no one got hurt. Every, you know, nothing happened at any of these shows that was, you know, really bad, like at Burning Man, where someone actually did get run over and, you know, that kind of thing. But I do think that, that kind of there's an element of like risk that needs to be part of it to, to make it exciting and fun as well. Not necessarily deadly risk, but no, but risk, you know, there's, there's, you're risking your, Sanity sometimes is fun. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what I Hopefully risk. You, you, I risk you get that it one most. <laughs> There's a pill for that, right? Better living <laughs> through chemistry again. But most important, you know, people can watch this movie right online to, tonight if they want to, right? They just go to what yeah. desolationcenter.com. Yeah. You know, anything that's the usual way people stream i mean I, i've heard other filmmakers that you've talked to and it's like yeah it's not going to be netflix um and if and a lot of people in the in the world outside of north america get frustrated there's vimeo on demand so if you're doesn't matter what country you're in globally you can watch it and that's a good one because you know that, that right. is a little bit better for the filmmaker as well yeah and that's nice crisp crisp quality too and then what are you working on now other than, than promoting this? One, one project, you know, I have this book publishing company, Amok Books, and um, 
one of my authors, John Gilmore, was a really interesting character. He's no longer alive, but I think I'm going to be doing something with his son, Carson, and it's kind of investigating his father, who's not like famous, but he was sort of larger than life. He was hanging out with James Dean, Jack Nicholson, you know, Janis Joplin, all these different people, and, and kind of finding out what's the truth and what's the the myth of his life. And uh, I published a great book of his about the, the Black Dahlia murder, which is called Severed. And it's a very, it's a very LA book, a generation before me. But I, I learned a lot about kind of, uh, you know, what Hollywood was like in that era. And I just feel like he, he has a great story to tell. And I, I kind of want to investigate that together with his son. God, didn't you do the Wild Palms I did. Reader. You're right. Yeah. Together with Roger <laughs> Trilling. Yeah. 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 We right. co-edited that. It was based on Bruce Wagner's limited series. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Bruce Wagner and Oliver Stone did this crazy yeah. TV series. And like, it was like David Lynchian era, except a different, right. like David Lynch meets, meets the Matrix or something. Yeah. No, that was a, that was a, and we got all kinds of interesting people contributing to it. You know, um, we even had... E. Howard Hunt as a CIA uh-huh. uh, operative and, and things like that. So yeah, it was that was a really cool project. But it was again, it was like performance, a performance theater book, performance art. You know, guerrilla. <laughs> it's yeah. like this is not the yeah. companion to a TV show. This no, is it definitely the, was well, thank blurring you. Yeah. the line between the TV show and reality into a bizarre conspiracy theory Mobius strip. You know, for people who don't know Wild Palms, it was this crazy sort of sci-fi. It, it, it didn't continue, but boy, those of us who got into the the portals it was opening really got, you know, it was sort of a Max Headroom era show, but so um, yeah, strange. Yeah, I mean, it dealt with a lot of the, <laughs> these issues about like, you know, simulacrum and what's real and what isn't right. and, and, and using using technology in that way. And yeah, I thought it was really prophetic. I mean, it, I, I, it definitely flawed, but yeah. So Roger and I kind of picked up on the parts that we liked about it. And, and Jen was involved in that book as well. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Genesis. I think Timothy Leary was involved in that one too. I really yeah. made the rounds of Hollywood, early 90s, I guess early 90s Hollywood. It would yeah. have been early 90s. Yeah. Uh, but it's just another, I mean, another, just a, a cultural touchstone for people to to realize, I mean, something that was so much easier to do then than I think now is, you know, creative people had their fingers in a lot of different pies at once. And it wasn't considered contradictory. It wasn't like, oh, wait a minute, you're a musician. What are you doing over here in in this? It was just like a group of weird creative friends all poking each other's noses in each other's projects and, and you know, and, and developing out of that. Yeah. I mean, and I have to give credit to people like Genesis who, you know, when you invited him to do it, Oh, can you, you know, make a little contribution to this Wild Palms reader? All of a sudden, I mean, he became, you know, the, he, he just took it to such a higher level and put so much mm. intensity. I remember getting these faxes from him with all these, you know, sort of, uh, I forget, manifesto type things in, in the yeah. guise of the sort of uh, L. Ron Hubbard type character. I mean, it was just, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, you, you got to, you look at a an opportunity and, and really run with it as opposed to thinking like, well, how much time do I have to devote to this? Or, you know what I mean? It was like more like yeah. a creative offering. Yeah. I mean, you did the real, the genuine, if if we build it, they will come 
kind of projects, but it's not just building it. There's a, a there's a kind of intentionality, a kind of openness, and a kind of generosity of spirit that you brought to each of these projects that engendered our participation in a way that it was like, oh, of course we'll come. We're, you know, it's like, yeah, I love that. I, I do love that feeling, you know, and I still get it in, in like organizing uh, Q and A's, you know, or even virtual mm-hmm. Q and A's for, for, for screenings, you know, like, oh, uh, I saw that, you know, Mark Stewart from the pop group did a post about Desolation Center and maybe he'd be willing to come do one of our Q&A panels. And then like, mm. he's like, of course, I'll be there, you know, in, in London. And like, <laughs> so I got to meet him and talk about all these these kind of ideas. And so I, I do think that, um, yeah, it just takes that little bit of extra effort or being open, like in, in the sense of the right. Desolation Center shows, you know, Alexander Hawke from my streets of Neubauten called me up. He said, oh, you know, are you okay with Mark Pauline from Survival Research Laboratories coming down from San Francisco? They want to come and, and do something with machines, you know? And I'm like, great. I, I, I'd never seen one of their shows. <laughs> I only knew them from Vale's book, from the Industrial Culture Handbook right. Research. And But to, to me, that was like, wow, this is getting really cool. You know, this is even better than yeah. what anything I had thought of. And I think that that was, again, something that just, you know, like, maybe I set something in motion, but I think I, I was always open to becoming better, different, cooler, not necessarily bigger. <laughs> and with any luck, hopefully uh, you've got a whole lot more time uh, to do that. You know, yes. there's the, the, there's another, at least another, at least a third act, but hopefully a, a, a fourth and fifth. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, really uh, interested, so glad to be in, in true touch with you. And um, yeah. hopefully I get to be a part, part of your extended posse uh, moving forward. Well, likewise, absolutely, yeah, and I'm interested in this 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 mic drop that you got planned as well. <laughs> I know, we'll see. <laughs> then I'll just disappear. But let me know how to connect. Oh yeah, I'll do, I'll leave I'll leave a, a, a trail, a, a, a crumb trail for people who care. Uh, but thank you, Stuart Sweezy. Thank you so much for being on on Team Human. You've been on it before there was a team, and uh, well, thank uh, you. Thanks for uh, for for leading the way for so many of us. Well, it's been a blast, and you know, thanks. And thank you all for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Stuart Sweezy. You can find out more about his new film, Desolation Center, at desolationcenter.com, or find more links to Stuart and his work at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelaine and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.